Hello, Pod Save the UK listeners. This is Nish Kumar, and I'm here as ever with Coco Khan. Hi, guys. Um, we are recording a uh, special uh, mini episode, a mini sode, if you will, um, to react to a uh, busy Monday morning of UK political news. Um, a, a, a quick summary of the events is that uh, Suella Braverman as uh, many people predicted, has been uh, sacked uh, as Home Secretary and uh, replaced by James Cleverly, the former Foreign Secretary. However, in a move that less people had anticipated, James Cleverly's replacement as Foreign Secretary is former Prime Minister and disturber of pigs, David Cameron. <laughs> um which is obviously a huge surprise for any number of reasons, chief amongst them that David Cameron is no longer a member of parliament. So in order for this move to take place, he has been made into a life peer um, so that he could be appointed uh, as foreign secretary. Uh, a lot of stuff has happened. Uh, Coco, what are your sort of uh, initial thoughts on this? I mean, it's been a whiplash morning, hasn't it? You know, being the childless freelancer that I am, I woke <laughs> up at 9am and saw that Suella Braverman had been sacked. I mean, we've spoken about on previous episodes that we think she was probably looking for that. To a certain extent, this is fulfilling her plan. I mean, you saw the pictures of her, never seen someone look so happy to be sacked. <laughs> but nonetheless, I thought, oh, I'll give myself this little moment to enjoy it. Pour me one out for Suella Braverman. And then next thing you know, just tip that down the sink, Nish, because uh, no time for toasting. Lord Foodbanks is back. He is back in a prime position. Um, yeah, it's been a roller coaster morning um, my first thought was wow how good of the king to uh, be so readily available to make <laughs> this man uh, appear yeah i i mean what what were your first instincts about it well how i feel about all this coco can actually be summarized by some correspondence we've had in uh, from the listeners we put a quick uh, call out on socials uh, to pod save the uk listeners about how uh, they were feeling about today's news and they have really summarized my feelings l pullen on instagram said any joy i feel hearing braverman is gone was ruined by hearing that David fucking Cameron is back. <laughs> and uh, at Katrina Clark said, I mean, basically just what the actual fuck? How can we have both an unelected prime minister and an unelected foreign secretary? Uh, uh, and Katrina also said, and I think this is a very, very important point and worth raising, it's a pretty terrible indication of what Sunak thinks of his other 350 MPs, that clearly not a single one of them is up to the task of being foreign secretary. And that what a great point from Katrina. Rishi Sunak has looked at his bench, seen the absolute festival of no talent fuckwits and thought, we have to get back the useless motherfucker who did this job a few years ago. Let's let's start with uh, Braverman. So we had talked uh, in previous weeks about how Braverman at this point appeared to be agitating for the sack. It, it, she was mm. almost... I think when we talked uh, to Zoe Grunwald uh, from the New Statesman last week, Zoe said uh, words to the effect of she's almost daring uh, Rishi Sunak uh, at this point to sack her. And if he does sack her, it positions, it puts herself into a position that, you know, she's going to be able to lead the kind of right flank of the Conservative Party. And it positions her as that flank's candidate uh, for the next uh the next time that they're looking for a leader, right? That's the kind of uh, angle of it. Um, 
And, you know, it's good to talk about those things uh, in kind of political and analytical terms. It, her comments um, about the uh, pro-Palestine protest um, and her comments about the police, particularly suggesting that they were um, expressing a bias uh, in favour of uh, Black Lives Matter protests. Listen, if there's one group of people who have been biased in favour of black people, I think we can all agree <laughs> It's the Metropolitan Police with their <laughs> consistent, unblemished track record Listen, of favouring black people. You've seen them at Carnival. Yeah, you've I, seen them. <laughs> I mean... Tr they try to twerk. They try very much. It's a, a different form of hate crime, I think that one is. <laughs> <laughs> It, it, it was a it, it was an unfathomable comment, but it was also hugely, hugely, hugely irresponsible. And look, I I, I don't think that there's any way that, given what we saw over the weekend, which was a, a huge protest around the cenotaph, which again it's worth restating that the pro-Palestine protests had worked with local authorities and respected and observed in many cases the two-minute silence uh, and also there was no plans for that protest to go anywhere near the cenotaph which is uh, central london's probably most visible and significant war memorial and the focal point of any remembrance day services that happen every single year and so suella bramman had confected her out over nothing however i believe that her comments i, I don't think this is a particularly contentious view either coco are directly to blame for the scenes that we've subsequently seen over the weekend where far right wing protesters were um, out on the streets. And I, I believe at the most at the last count, 92 arrests uh, were made. Um, I'm not the only person that thinks this. Uh, the Guardian is reporting that police officers have uh, themselves off the record uh, been briefing the paper that Suella Braverman's claims of police bias were a significant factor in the sustained far-right attacks on members of the force. And if we had any sort of reasonable, functional system of accountability for these politicians, Suella Braverman wouldn't just lose her job as Home Secretary, she would be absolutely nowhere near frontline politics ever again. I, I, I cannot stress enough the extent to which her comments have a direct link. And I'm not the only one who thinks so. There are clearly police sources that also agree with that view. She is an absolute disgrace. Well, I mean, I'm inclined to agree, Nish. But given the day's events with David Cameron, I think it's fair to say that there is... Anybody can come back to frontline politics. You know, you can <laughs> cause the biggest civil rift in uh, modern British history and you can still come back to uh, frontline politics. So I'm afraid... Uh, I do feel that this is not the last we've seen of Suella Braverman. I think this is all part of her dastardly plan. I do like the sense, like you said, that there's some sort of comeuppance, even if it just is a, a line for someone like James Cleverly not to cross. Maybe he can learn from this horrible, horrible, destructive situation to not go that far. So, yeah, I don't know, Nish. I'm, I'm, I think we might see her again. Has, anyway, she's already been sacked once before and she's back. So this would just be a trilogy. Yeah, that's right. The last time she was sacked, uh, she was sacked for six days. Uh, she was sacked uh, in the kind of dying embers of the uh, Truss administration. Um, she was ordered to resign for sending an official document from her personal email to a fellow MP, which is a, a serious breach of ministerial rules. Um, and then six days later, Sunak reappointed her to the same job. So again, it, 
he has cultivated an environment in which there is no consequence for her various controversies. Mm. Um, and it, it, w- once back in office, she's you know she was accused of racist rhetoric by a, a conservative Saeed Awasi over her rhetoric around grooming gangs. She's referred to uh, an invasion of small boats. Um, and then in the last week and a half, she's called pro-Palestinian demonstrations uh, hate marches and said that uh, homelessness and people living in tents uh, was a lifestyle choice for people. So clearly she was emboldened by Sunak's complete inability to, uh, or or unwillingness to rein her in uh, in any way. But now she's going to be on the back bench. So bear in mind, this is the sort of things she was saying when she was Home Secretary. So now she's on the back benches. Uh, We could be in for a true golden era of Suella Braverman absolute batshitness. But I wonder to what extent these these new appointments, you know, Cameron in particular, is Sunak saying, do you know what, I'm, I'm not going to do this anymore. It's a welcome reprieve, even if it's just for a year until someone else gets in, because she was extremely toxic and I don't know how far she would have gone. But also, I mean... When the Conservative Party were announcing these new appointments, like it's like a football transfer with their like weird headshots and like announced we've got an agreement, you know, whoever it is, Laura Trott is now coming to the front line. It was all very strange. But, uh, you know, the line they used for James Cleverly was James Cleverly will stop the boats. So, you know, we can't. We can't blame all of it on her. There is obviously this kind of xenophobic, anti-migrant, you know, low-key dog whistle racism embedded in that party. So uh, it remains to be seen, I think, whether the legacy of Suella will be um, will be as strong or as diluted. So in terms of the polling around this decision, uh, most people in this country... Based on a snap YouGov poll taken today, think that Rishi Sunak was right rather than wrong to sack Suella Braverman as Home Secretary. Uh, 57% of the people that responded um, said that he was right to sack her. Only 20% actually said that he was wrong to sack her. This tactic that she's going down of appealing to the very hard right of the Conservative Party doesn't seem to be playing particularly well on a national scale. Um Uh, But then maybe it doesn't need to, because if her end goal is to be the next Conservative leader, the only people she has to convince are the membership of the Conservative Party, a group of people who elected Liz Truss and were dangerously close to, according to all polling data, re-electing Boris Johnson when given the choice of who was going to replace Truss. But... If you extrapolate this out nationally, it doesn't seem to uh, it doesn't seem to be going over particularly well with the majority of people in the country. Um, speaking of people that don't go over well with the majority of people in the in the United Kingdom, let's talk about David Cameron. And again, with Braverman, th- there was an expectation that this was going to happen. Coco actually sent a text message to our WhatsApp group saying she's gone, she's definitely gone on Monday. Um, and I hope that you. Um, made some money out of that, Coco, because some good has to come out. I, I just wish I woke up earlier, Nish. I just <laughs> woke up early enough to like enjoy it before the the return of the spectre, David Cameron, um, so, ruined my morning. Yeah. So the sequence of events was this: we heard that Bradman was going to be sacked, and then David Cameron arrived at Ten Downing Street, and. To show you how much of a surprise this is, there is extraordinary footage of news correspondents outside Ten Downing Street having no idea why Cameron uh, was going to be there. So clearly, 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 this was something that people with their ears to the ground did not have 
any sense of. He was prime minister, of course, uh, until 2016 when he uh, called and subsequently lost the Brexit referendum. And uh, he quit uh, that morning uh, after the result had been announced. Uh, and the last time we saw him in frontline politics, he was uh, whistling on his way back into number 10, calmly walking away from a s- immediately detonating country. Um, what, Coco, I mean... What's happened here? Have I... Am I asleep? Well, it's difficult. Is this a nightmare? I mean, yes, it is a nightmare. It definitely is a nightmare. Um, And and like, I've been trying this morning to sort of get out of my kind of headspace, which is, you know, I'm to the left. We're all on the progressive side of politics. So, of course, you know, you look at him and you say, okay, well, you are a grubby little man who uh, oversaw austerity, oversaw the emergence of food banks, oversaw school cuts that we're still dealing with right now. You're a grubby little man who, um, you know, after you left frontline politics, was involved with one of the worst lobbying scandals we've seen in the UK. I mean, there's lots of bad, isn't there? There's just so many bad things to to think about. I haven't even started on Libya as well. So, you know, great that he's getting a foreign secretary role when it's widely understood that many of the calls he made in terms of the British involvement in the situation in Libya made the situation worse and there were casualties off the back of that. But nonetheless, anyway, I've been trying to think about, well, if I was right wing, what? how would I feel about this? That is a really difficult thought exercise for me anyway. I don't wear pearl necklaces. I don't like kitten <laughs> heels. There's not really much I can do in sort of becoming this right-wing person. But I think the logic of it is this. Cameron is seen as a safe pair of hands. He is the antithesis to Boris Johnson. When Boris Johnson came in, he was like, you know, trying to kick against the Cameron legacy, right? And so in a way, if Sunak's trying to shed himself of the Boris Johnson legacy and all of that sort of stink that was around that, maybe aligning himself with this this safe pair of hands, David Cameron, is is wise. Now, obviously... I have very bad things to say about him, of course. But nonetheless, he does have strong relationships to the EU because he was prime minister and he was a Remainer. And like we do need to get a little bit closer to Europe. He also, you know, again, because of his experience, has a relationship to the US. That's really important as well at the minute. So I think there are people on Sunak's side of things that will be very, very happy about it. Okay, so then what does that mean for conservative voters? Well... In the red wall, I don't think David Cameron's very popular. So Sunak's really focusing on his kind of blue voters, right? So the Conservatives have gone back to the back to basics, being like, let's focus on the wealthy Southeast, let's focus on the wealthy South. It might work, you know. Maybe it maybe it will. Maybe it's actually a smooth move. Maybe this is Sunak doing actual real politics and doing it well I don't know I mean obviously like Eunice on a personal level I'm like oh god not this guy again but maybe it symbols uh, symbolizes the real Rishi Sunak that we've been waiting for for a long time maybe he is actually a centrist dad The New York Times calls BritBox the best of British telly. Stream acclaimed original series, including Payback, starring Peter Mullen, Stonehouse, starring Matthew McFadden, and Archie, the man who became Cary Grant, starring Jason Isaacs. Plus, discover powerful new series like Three Little Birds and the return of BAFTA-winning drama Time, starring Bella Ramsey, Tamara Lawrence, and Jodie Whittaker. Stream the best of British TV only on BritBox. Start a free trial at BritBox.com. 
this does signal Sunak trying to shore up his support in the wealthy southeast, where the Conservative Party have been losing a lot of seats to the Liberal Democrats. So the that's the section of the country that Cameron played very well with in the 2010-2015 elections. But also, let's not forget, all of these public school boys, they all reduce themselves to playground politics. David Cameron is big and popular and Rishi Sunak is small and weasley. This is why I invite you to my parties, Nish. I like to be associated with big names. It makes me look good. Deflected glory is still glory. So I think that explains a lot about Rishi. It, but again, I don't know. that A lot of that speculation is based around the an election that happened in 2015 some mm. eight years and a huge amount of news and reappraisal of politics has happened in the intervening eight years. Um, and one of the major things that happens is that, you know, there's obviously a thing where prime ministers leave their post and they can often do things to enhance their reputation. People like John Major and Gordon Brown probably enhance their reputation um, after they left office. Tony Blair went a different direction of growing his hair out like someone who was threatening Bruce Willis in a 1980s action film and, you know, doing some lobbying work for some, at best, let's be charitable and say questionable regimes. However, David Cameron's post-prime ministerial career is basically defined by something you've already uh, alluded to with the lobbying scandal. So um, he was uh, lobbying uh, ministers and high-ranking civil servants at the height of the COVID pandemic on behalf uh, of Green Seal Capital. So uh, after uh, he left number 10, two years after he left number 10, he joined Green Seal as an advisor and a lobbyist. And it, it's, it's, a, it's a lobbying scandal that led to him being described as having a significant uh, lack of judgment uh, by uh, a Treasury Select Committee. Um, Cameron has actually trumpeted the fact that he said that he didn't break any rules. But the Treasury Committee's report actually said, and this is a direct quote, that Cameron didn't break the lobbying rules, but instead said it reflects on the insufficient strength of the rules. So that is not a resounding not guilty verdict that suggests that Cameron, what Cameron was doing essentially exploited loopholes that exist. And it also alluded to what it called a significant lack of judgment on behalf uh, of the, uh, of the former prime minister. So that's really the thing that's defined his post prime ministerial career is a massive lobbying scandal. He was basically lobbying the government for COVID relief money for Greensill Capital, which actually ended up uh, collapsing the following year. Um, the failure of Greensill Capital is estimated by a parliamentary inquiry to have cost UK taxpayers up to five billion pounds right although there was one other public appearance which was actually to criticize rishi sunak right he was in favor yeah. of keeping hs2 project going can't believe i agree with something that david cameron said so i mean even that like his last show in public was to <laughs> show yeah, that rishi sunak didn't know how to make decisions yeah his <laughs> most just... his most recent intervention on frontline politics was to criticize the man who is now his boss but i mean there's always been a problem with accountability in this in this party um you know we, we've talked before about like the trumocracy and vip lanes and michelle moan and all there's so many scandals i can't even really remember them all and now actually with this situation with baron cameron I still can't really bring myself to say that phrase. You know, there, there, there is an accountability problem 
just from the get-go, he is going to be held to account in the House of Lords rather than in Commons, which yeah. makes it harder for MPs to hold him to account. Um, and ha- given the situation in the Middle East, which we've seen already and we've been discussing about on previous episodes, it's something that means a lot to our listeners and to the UK in general. The idea that the, the Foreign Secretary is not being held to account or, or rather it's, it's harder for MPs to do that during this time feels very, very, uh, it just feels very dystopian. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So we should say that we're going into quite an extraordinary set of circumstances here where the foreign secretary at the time of, you know, an enormous unfolding crisis uh, with the Israel-Gaza war, um, also with the continued war in Ukraine, there are huge global crises and we're going into both of them with a foreign secretary who will not be sat in the House of Commons. So there at the moment will not be held, be able to be held accountable by MPs. Now, we should say that the common speaker, Sir Lindsay Hoyle, has addressed this in a statement this afternoon and has sought advice from clerks. And is he says he's looking forward to hearing government proposals on how the foreign secretary can be properly accountable uh, to MPs. And uh, he has said this, I can assure the House I'm fully aware of the need for members to be able to hold the government to account in this area, especially at the current time. I'll do everything I can to ensure that we are able to do so. Um, um, but it, it does present us with an extraordinary set of circumstances. Of all the points uh, in recent history to have a foreign secretary that isn't sat in the House of Commons, this feels like a particularly bad one. Right, um, absolutely, absolutely. And what are you thinking in terms of an election date? Because this morning, as I tweeted angrily, that realisation that our foreign secretary is not elected, he's not an elected MP, he hasn't won an election for over a decade, um, and our current prime minister didn't stand for a general election. Okay, fine, he's an MP. But even so, just in that moment, I could feel this rage inside of me, just thinking back to Cameron and all that talk as well around the Brexit referendum, about unelected officials and our own sovereignty. And here I am being led by two guys I've had literally no say on for a really, really long time. For me, I feel like this has got to mean an election date uh, being announced soon, surely. I don't know. How are you feeling about it? Well, there are reports uh, from uh, unnamed uh, associates of David Cameron that he uh, isn't uh, in it to do the job for five months. So the the inference of that being Sunak's plan to call an early election is now not happening. And Sunak has presumably given Cameron some assurances that he won't just immediately be plunged into an election campaign. He, he, he has to call the election by the 17th of December and then there's 25 working days to hold the actual election. Two plus sides for you, though. Yeah. Two positives. One, I'm sure many of our listeners and myself have shared in the, the feeling when Danny Dyer let loose on television and yeah. said, where is David Cameron, the twat? He yeah. just caused this chaos and scuttled off. And now where is he? In Nice, probably, with his trotters up. <laughs> and I agree, you know, absolutely. So it's good in a way. I was always really resentful of him leaving. 
and just scuttling off and sitting on his pile of money probably and like you know walking around the Cotswolds and being everyone's friend and I didn't get my chance to uh, throw a tomato at him as a journalist <laughs> shall we say and uh, I, now that opportunity may arise we're going to see more of him on screens and I'm looking forward to seeing I hope members of the press really gunning for him and bringing up all of those things asking him at every turn why should we trust you after Greensill why should we trust you after all of this so I hope to see that and the second one is that Nish we have managed to speak about David Cameron and not once talk about the pig shagging and I think that means we have grown personally through this I'd love to agree with you Coco but I think you're forgetting that I mentioned it immediately (laughs) I I believe I described him as an ex-prime minister and pig disturber oh yes sorry yes you are right okay well just the one one upside then (laughs) Um, and we should also say look it's been a day where political reporters have kind of been um, in a frenzied state of excitement about the state of this reshuffle. And it's been a day where the news has sort of been dominated once again by the kind of internal machinations of the Conservative Party. But we should also say there is, uh, you know, we should also say that this is an impediment to the business of governing all of this um, internal infighting, reshuffling and restructuring. Um, One of the elements of the reshuffle that is understandably just going to get less play because of the headlines about Braverman and Cameron um, is that uh, Rachel McLean, the housing minister, uh, has also been sacked and she's been quite public uh, that she didn't want to go and she was uh, removed from the post by Rishi Sunak. Now, what this means is that the UK is going to get its 16th housing minister since 2010. And the other reason that this was significant was this was supposed to be the f- uh, the first day of the committee stage of a bill designed to help protect the rights of private renters. Um, and Tom Darling, who's the campaign manager at the Renters Reform Coalition, had this to say. It is frankly shambolic that we will now be on to our 16th housing minister since 2010, and incredibly nine just since the government promised to end no-fault evictions. Now, just before the first day of the important committee stage, which involves poring over the detail of the bill, she is sacked. It makes a mockery of government and shows a shocking lack of respect for England's 11 million private renters. So whilst everybody is very excited about the comings and goings of various MPs, let's be very clear about this. This kind of infighting, restructuring and reshuffling is an impediment towards the business of government and blocks the government from doing things that could help ordinary people in their day-to-day lives. And it's part of the reason why huge numbers of people in this country do not feel that politics and our system of government works to represent them. Because all we are seeing today is people's personal ambitions play out. And we are seeing political journalists be very, very excited by the theatre and the sport of it. But whilst this theatre, sport and personal ambitions are playing out, People's lives are being affected. Things that the government should be doing to help it, to help people that live in this country are being affected. And so it's on days like this where I have tremendous sympathy for people in this country that feel like politics has absolutely no bearing on their lives and that they feel like the people at the head of government have no interest in doing things that actually could improve their lives. And it is days like this that alienate people from politics and make them feel like government has nothing to offer them. 
Well, I couldn't agree more really, really Nish. I guess the only thing I'm hanging on to is uh, they always say that revenge is a dish best served cold. And uh, Cameron's been away so long that he's uh, he's a chilled pudding and I'm ready to eat. Let's, uh, <laughs> let's eat this guy. <laughs> um, thanks for listening, everybody. Um, I think I speak for everyone when I say uh, I wish Suella Braverman nothing but a lifetime of diarrhoea. Um, <laughs> We will actually. I be was going to say to you, Nish, as well, because obviously it was Diwali over the weekend, you know, yeah. as, a, as a metaphor, as the triumph of light over darkness. And I was like, I bet I know what Nish was praying for. <laughs> I, uh, you know, uh, it was a real gift. Uh, it's a real gift for the Indian community that one of our <laughs> embarrassing representatives has temporarily been forced to the margins of politics. Um, <laughs> Thanks very much for uh, listening and thanks very much for watching. We will be back for a full episode on Thursday where we'll be joined by LBC presenter and author James O'Brien. Um, he has some uh, very spicy thoughts on David Cameron in particular. There's a whole chapter devoted to him in his book on the people who broke Britain. And if you have a question you'd like us to put to James O'Brien, email us at psuk at reducedlistening.co.uk. That's psuk at reducedlistening.co.uk. Thank you very much to everyone who got uh, in touch today. Uh, I'm sorry we didn't get to uh, all of your correspondence. The general tenor is... <laughs> fucking livid <laughs> um, and uh, rightly so um, thanks very much for listening uh, we'll uh, see you on Thursday thanks guys see you soon 